millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. This is an RNZ podcast. Little Helen Horswell has arms only a few inches long. Money, not an apology, is what the litter my victims need to improve their lives. Many victims of this crippling tranquilizer of the late 1950s have reached school leaving age. And by 1979, most will be... I'm Sonia Sly, and in this episode of Eyewitness, we take a look at a drug that caused deformities in around 10,000 babies. It was referred to as a crippling tranquilizer, a prescription for disaster. Thalidomide was sold in 46 countries under 51 different names. It was claimed to be safe during pregnancy and was used to treat morning sickness from the late 1950s. It arrived here on our shores in the early 60s. But taken within the early stages of gestation, it caused severe deformities. Well, they treat you as if you're a bit non-compassmentous, you know. Terry Wiles, in this archival audio from 1983, was one of 21 people in New Zealand affected by the drug. Sometimes people sort of like pat me on the head and say, hello dear, how are you? And I'm saying, I'm fine, thank you. You've got shortened legs, your uh, feet, your toes you use as hands. Mm, You've got one eye and you stand how tall? Two and a half feet tall. Around 5,000 babies were born with unimaginable deformities. They were missing sexual organs or had defects affecting other internal organs. Some were born with curved spines, born deaf and blind. Some were even left to die by the medical practitioners. Today, a majority of those babies who survived are in their 50s. I'm 58. I was born in December 1960. Omaru-born Barry de Geest is the oldest thalidomide survivor in New Zealand. There was a, a doctor in Britain that did some research and it actually affected the nerve endings of um, the foetus. So that's why the limbs stopped growing. You don't have any arms, is that right? None at all. I have a, a stump on one side, a shoulder. Short legs, no knees. I have three toes on one foot and I did have four on the other, but um, I got one uh, removed because it had a double toenail which made it like a claw and it used to dig into the other foot. So I don't have any joints at all. My legs are held up by the muscles. They didn't think I'd ever walk. But then I got myself up and started walking, but it's basically the muscles that hold the legs up onto the hips. Because of the severity of Barry's deformities, as a child, he was offered artificial limbs. Now, you might think that this was the greatest gift he could ever receive, right? The medical fraternity offering limbs to a child who was born without them. People wanted to make us normal, to look the same and do the same stuff as everybody else, and they'd give us these monstrosities. They were heavy and cumbersome. They were made of a fibreglassy type product, and they had hooks at the end, really ugly-looking hooks. And when I was young, every year I'd have to go down for an assessment to Dineen from Omaru. They would take X-rays and they would take blood. How long were you going through these? Till about ten. The hard part for me was I'd say to Mum, why are we doing this? And she didn't know. Because it was in the days when doctors were gods. If the doctor said you did this, you did it. 
we were used as guinea pigs to find out more about how deformities that we had affected us. These are the feet of Thomas, a happy little ten-year-old from Stuttgart. He's very intelligent and getting undressed is only one of the things he's very good at. He can also swim like a fish, play football and answer the telephone as well as come top of the form in several subjects, all of which is very remarkable considering that he has no arms. And they even wanted to turn my feet back to front to put knees on so my heels would be knees. I was sitting there and they were talking to Mum and they said we want to, to turn Barry's feet uh, medically around so that they were back to front so he could wear artificial legs. I was horrified and luckily Mum had the nouse to say, look, Barry could make that decision when he's older. Because that basically is creating another handicap for you in a way. You know, you learn to deal with the body that you have only for somebody to mess around with it and create other problems for you, potentially. Oh, yes. I had to wear these artificial arms. I'm glad in a way she made me do it. When I turned 15, she said, you can make the decision whether you wear the arms anymore. I mean, can you imagine having no arms and being made to be the same height as everyone else and you fall over? Never wore them again. The question of who was responsible for the Contagan tragedy was debated in the largest and biggest court case in German history since the trial of Nazi war criminals at Nuremberg. The drug company that designed the drug was set up during the Second World War. It was actually the Nazis had taken over a perfume company and turned it into a drug company. It was the place where they invented the gas that killed the Jews in the gas chambers and they invented other drugs that they could sell after the war. The German company that invented thalidomide was called Grunenthal, and one of the men responsible for the distribution of the drug was former war criminal Dr Heinrich Muchter. Now, he was hired by Grunenthal as the chief of research and production. He also received a bonus for every single pill that was sold. Prior to international distribution, the drug was also given to employees of the company where babies of these employees were born with deformities, but any claims that it was because of the drug were denied. But when they found out that it caused all these um, deformities, the German government legislated so that no one could actually sue the drug company in future years. Thalidomide survivors overseas were later granted substantial compensation, Last year, a national foundation for thalidomide victims was set up to which the German government gave a further £7 million. That meant £20 million could be shared amongst 2,600 families. But here in New Zealand, it was a different story. Most New Zealanders only got one level of compensation. Uh, it would have been in 1974. We have since, in the last few years, got um, a level of support from a subsidiary of Grenenthal called Diageo. They have given ex gratia payments, which all New Zealanders with thalidomide get for the next 20 years. We did get a minimal amount of compensation, like I got $30,000, you know, which was nothing. 21 thalidomide survivors is relatively small compared to the thousands overseas, and part of that was due to our isolation. Transport services and that weren't that great in the early 60s, so things took a long time to travel around the country. So there were samples available. Mum recalls getting the sample from the doctor, and there was a lot more that weren't really affected. We'll come back to Barry in a moment. So why is it that some babies weren't affected by the drug? 
Dr Sarah Donald from Otago University specialises in research around medicine during pregnancy. When we're thinking about exposures in pregnancy and whether they may or may not lead to a congenital defect or a birth defect, the period of time that we're most concerned about is was there exposure in, in those first sort of 12 weeks of pregnancy because, yeah, that is when all those organs are forming and if something goes wrong early in development, it's just going to obviously propagate through and, and end up as a birth defect. So unfortunately, thalidomide, the problem it was treating was morning sickness, which is most common in that first trimester of pregnancy. So it was just really unfortunate that the drug that had that side effect was given in the time when the fetuses are most vulnerable to toxic exposures. But how much could really have been done to test this drug before it was distributed? One of the changes that was brought in following the thalidomide was that all drugs now must be tested on animals before they can be tested in humans. But the problem is that, you know, you do the testing on animals and no sort of birth defects or unusual things go on in the pregnant animals. It doesn't necessarily mean that you're not going to have trouble um, or problems developing in humans because there is, you know, just the way that their bodies manage or handle the medicine can be quite different. Which makes sense, right? But I can't help but wonder what it might have been like for Barry's mother to have a baby who was born with severe deformities. That, for one, could have been avoided, and two, happened at a time where there was very little support for people with disabilities. When I was born, they wouldn't let her see me. They took me away, and it wasn't until two days later she managed to con a nurse into bringing me to her, and that nurse actually got the sack for doing that. She just didn't really think much of it. She's got no arms. It'll just have to be a bit different. Whereas my father was in the days where men didn't go to the hospital at the birth, so he was up at my grandparents' place, and... They rang and said that it was tragic news and I'd be better off in a home. In the 60s, there was no special education. Disabled people weren't living long lives. The medical fraternity, they didn't expect me to live. We were the first generation that actually lived a lot longer and a lot of us are still alive today. Right from day one, Mum argued about me going home, whereas the doctor said, look, put him in a home in Wellington, forget you had him. He'll be with people that he knows. Go away and have another baby. And my mother for six months visited me twice a day to feed me. And she had gowns and that, but the the medical fraternity wouldn't let her put me in them. Then after six months, she said, nah, that's it, I'm taking him home. That's pretty brave of her. Very brave. But had she not come to get you after six months, what would have happened to you? I would have gone to the Home of Compassion in Wellington and been brought up, you know, as an orphan. Well, I know that it closed and a lot of people went to the home in Waipukurau. Lots of stories of being treated badly. It was an institution. A lot of the staff could get away with things that you couldn't in a home. Thanks to his mother, Barry was able to have a fairly normal childhood and his mum even fought for him to go to a mainstream school. The local school didn't want me to go. It was only after us that they started special classes. I liked being mainstream because a lot of families with disabled kids say that they get teased, and, but you learn to cope so later in life you can actually handle it. And I was really lucky because I had friends and if kids started to have me on, they would actually protect me. My father basically ignored me and I think that helped a lot. 
I went and did my own thing. My mum didn't really know how to cope when I got older, and so I was just left to my own devices. The Kyle's family in Omaru, my best friend, and their family basically adopted me, and they had three boys and a girl, and I just fitted in as one of the boys. Barry learnt to rifle shoot. He also joined the rowing team. Rowing actually made me into a man. I'm the guy that sits in the back of the boat. Well, it's the front now, and that's something that we actually changed the design of forever in rowing. But when I got bigger, I had to lie down because I couldn't fit in the boat properly. But it cottoned on around the world, so they started to lie the coxswains down and they ended up putting them in the front of the boat. I mean, do you feel like that's kind of special in itself, that you kind of changed the nature of a massive sport? Oh, I do, but it wasn't just me. One of the things I tell people a lot is that you can never be an island. And being disabled... I was able to share the dreams that I had and I had people around me that took up that mantle and actually helped me to achieve the dreams that I had. What was it about rowing that appealed to you so much? The camaraderie and it was getting away from home. And did it make you forget about your disability in a way? Yes, it did. In 2012, Barry attended a commemorative event in the UK marking just over 50 years since the withdrawal of thalidomide. Now, it was also the 50th anniversary of the formation of the Thalidomide Society. There were survivors from around the UK, Canada and Brazil, plus a sprinkling of Australians too. There was excitement because I hadn't really met any other survivors. I walked in and saw all these people like me and I turned around and walked out again and went back up to the hotel room. I was totally freaked out. It was quite overwhelming. So you felt obviously quite challenged by that then? You've got to realised that in New Zealand, you know, I'd been treated special, I had been in the paper because I was different, and then all of a sudden I was normal. It was actually quite a shock. But after I got over the shock, I went back down and I had a ball. I started to feel like I belonged. In the UK, they had got together from birth, so they knew each other. There was one woman there who said that a doctor had come up to her at a conference crying he had put a baby aside and let it die, and now he sees her doing really well. He, he regrets it and wished he had never done it. Barry is one thalidomide survivor who has achieved a lot. He's also been politically active in the disability sector, advocating for change. I was involved with the political scene when they were rewriting the Building Act. The way picture theatres are set up, that was a group of us in Palmerston North that actually talked to Hoyts when they first started building theatres to leave seats out. There was two women in Wellington who did the Human Rights Act about accessible buses, and I was the spokesperson. And I'm really proud of those things. Thalidomide was banned and withdrawn from the market in 1962, but not long after it was relicensed, and today it's still used in countries like Brazil and India as a successful treatment for leprosy and a bone marrow cancer known as multiple myeloma. But with little warning around the drug, these countries have substantial cases of birth defects. A lot of thalidomide survivors it should be destroyed. I'm a bit more philosophical about it and believe that if it helps people, then it's good. I know that in those third world countries, what happens is that somebody gets prescribed it and then the whole neighbourhood takes it. And that's when it can cause the disabilities. I don't think there's any simple answer. You know, for me, if it's helping people, at least they can come up with an alternative, then 
you know, why, why stop it? That was Barry DeGeest. And this episode of Eyewitness was produced by me, Sonia Sly, and the sound engineer was Phil Benge. Special thanks to Natonga Sound and Vision for the use of archival audio. There's a great back catalogue of Eyewitness episodes that you can listen to at any time via Spotify, Radio Public, Stitcher and on the RNZ website, rnz.co.nz forward slash eyewitness. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com.